1520 is a year of suspense. The Pope renews his call for Luther to be silenced. Luther publishes some of his most significant books in his lifetime. Emperor Charles V is crowned at Aachen, and the Pope expects this pig that has been let loose in the vineyard of the church will finally be chained up and silenced. Today, Evan and I will discuss the highlights of 1520, the events and the documents that took place 500 years ago. I'm Mike Yeagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. Well, uh, after a little bit of a a break, a COVID-inspired break, we're we're back, and I'm so glad to, to get back to this. And now we're going back and we're taking a look at 1520. Because it's 2020. It's good to look back 500 years ago and see that, you know, there's always been some struggles and some hard things going on. And God's word finds a way to endure. Now, in 1520, let's let's look at the timeline and sort of lay out what's happening. Uh, on one side, you have Luther. And, and Luther is publishing books and treaties, treatises. Um, and he's getting more confident at sharing the gospel uh, and the truth of the scriptures. And then on the other side, the Pope and the Emperor are trying to utilize the authority of politics and influence in attempts to silence Luther. Luther's counting on his argument to win the day. The Pope and the Emperor are counting on politics to win the day. This is really the pen versus the sword. And, and, you know, we're going to see as the two, two sides try to solve all this, uh, there's this growing crisis. You know, because they're, really, the, the Pope and the Emperor, they, they sort of look at Luther as somebody who doesn't deserve a seat at the table. And, and, and Luther, through the gospel and the, 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 and the power of scripture, is forcing himself to have that seat at the table. And, and to force the, the Pope and the Emperor to listen to him and, and address the issues he's bringing up. Uh, and really, a lot of this comes down to the power of the printing press. And that, that is, that's sort of the, the situation that, that, is, that changes everything for what, you know, that's why the Pope and the Emperor totally misunderstand what's going on. They misunderstand the level of influence that Luther can have. They see him as just kind of this past, this Augustinian monk of a past um, he has his 95 theses. He involves himself in some theological debates in academic circles in Leipzig. And then he keeps sticking around. And they're kind of surprised by this, I think. And so he will, even as he's going to travel to the Diet of Worms in 1521, he's always just kind of meeting people, greeting people, and the crowds are growing. And they think, you know what, we'll meet in this assembly hall and we'll tell you what to do and you're going to do it. And that's not what's going to happen. And, and what we've got, uh, you have Luther with this growing awareness in 1520 that he's more than just a pastor. He's more than just a professor. He is, he is the, 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 we'll say the, the tip of the spear for something, something new in the church. And, and he's beginning to understand that. And, and so in 1520, he releases three critical documents that that really shape Lutheran theology, even to this day. And some of these documents we've looked 
back at in previous episodes with a lot of uh, drill down to what they say. Today, we're kind of giving just that broad scope of timeline because I have found that largely when I look at history, I learn little stories here, little stories there, and I don't always see how those stories fit into a broader timeline. So that's the goal of today. We're going to look at the Babylonian captivity of the church, the freedom of a Christian, and treatise on good works. But first, we're going to take a look at something we talked about back in episode 13, and that is the 14 consolations. And, and the, this, is, this is something where uh, Frederick the Wise comes back. Now, Frederick the Wise, just to bring everybody back up to speed, he is the prince who's in charge of the region of Germany that Luther lives in. And they're in Saxony. And Frederick the Wise is the person who is really responsible for giving Luther the political cover, the political protection against the Pope and the Emperor. Because they they have to, he's a very, very powerful person, and, and they have to deal with him. Yes, Charles of Spain has been elected to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. And one of the people that was involved in electing him was Frederick the Wise. One of the seven people. This is, this is not like in the U.S. where you have millions of votes cast. You've got no. seven votes cast. And Frederick the Wise has one of those votes. And so he is unbelievable. By today's standards, he is. it's, it's hard to wrap our heads around how influential he was. Maybe like a Supreme Court justice in that way, how there's only a small number of Supreme Court justices. You want to have someone that is friendly to you on the Supreme Court if you have a case coming before them. Charles V needs to keep friends with Frederick the Wise. So now uh, 1519 finishes with an imperial diet that has elected Charles V to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, 1519 also, though, finishes with Frederick the Wise ill. So Frederick is, is getting very, very sick. And, and so what ends up happening is Luther writes him a, this pastoral letter that encourages him to remain focused on the blessings of Christ. And that's, that's probably not bad uh, for, for today's day and age uh, in, in, in this era of the pandemic. And Luther wrote the 14 Consolations, and it was published in 1520. Uh, for the benefit of anyone that would be ill and facing the, facing the fear of death. We encourage you to go back and look in episode 13 for more detail on this. But now for today's just kind of overview, a background on these 14 constellations and the framework of writing 14. Why 14? Well, because in 1446, a Franconian shepherd claimed to have a vision of the Christ child surrounded by 14 saints. And over time, each of these saints were seen as a protector against a particular disease. Devotional books were written to guide a person's practice of faith, their piety, by remembering the visions of each of these 14 saints. So Luther changes this, and, and he, you know, he takes it away from the traditional way of the, you've got these 14 saints, and you pray to the 14 saints, and that'll, this saint will get you against whatever, and that one will get against whatever. And what Luther does is he, he rewrites it, with the 14 saints being replaced by these 14 altarpieces um, painted of the, of the scene. And they're like seven evils and seven blessings. Um, Luther shows that the seven evils are relatively in insignificant 
compared to the blessings of the sufferings endured by Christ on the cross. And then Christ has become our suffering for us so that we no longer need to fear the evils of this age. And, and Luther, by structuring the seven evils and the seven blessings around the hinge point of Christ being our Savior, redefines our agency in suffering. No longer are we someone who has to make pleas of desperation to a saint, but now we are taught to rely confidently on the work of Christ. And so Luther is completely shifting the faithful practice of anyone who is ill or facing death from rather than being someone who is pleading and begging for some saint to notice you, he's reminding Frederick the Wise and everyone, Jesus Christ is the one that has suffered for you, noticed you, and has now brought you the blessings of his cross and resurrection. So Luther publishes this in Latin and German in Wittenberg in 1520. Uh, the Latin version included a dedication to Elector Frederick the Wise, uh, but the publisher forgot to include the dedication in the German version. So, uh, an un very unfortunate. <laughs> uh, uh, Fortunately, Frederick the Wise did get better, and that oversight of not including the dedication in the German version uh, didn't cause God to slay <laughs> Frederick the Wise. <laughs> so, the next thing that goes on is uh, a treatise on good works. Now, you know, I was actually looking back over our episodes, and somehow, some way, we never had a full episode dedicated to a treatise on good works, but we touched on it over and over and over again. And, uh, and you know, it's like one of these things we've talked around and many, many times, but we've never actually dedicated a full episode to it. And we're still not dedicating a full episode to it. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> but George Spilayton, he's the court preacher. He is the counselor to the elector, Frederick Dwight. He's the one that had asked Luther to write the 14 consolations. He also asks Luther to write some pastoral guide for people on what good works should they aim to do. Now, one of the problems, Luther, obviously, uh, if you're familiar with, we've talked a lot about Middle Ages theology in this in this show, and and there was this this real strong thought that if people didn't have to do good works to get into heaven, then they wouldn't do good works at all. And so when Luther comes out with the gospel and says that Christ did all the work for us, one of the ongoing, for the rest of his life, there was this, this attack on Luther that was that the, the Lutheran church was licentious, that the Lutheran church was antinomian, antinomian meaning without the law, uh, that that the, this 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 tension in the Lutheran theology about what is the role of the law uh, was right there at the very beginning, and Luther the first time he addresses it, one of the first time he addresses it is right here in this treatise on good works, and it still comes up in the Lutheran Church. Just this last year, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne had a whole symposium on an examination of the third use of the law and how. Gerhard Forty um, and his theology has denied the third use of the law. And they had this whole symposium looking at how should the law be used for ethics in the Lutheran church and wondering are certain um, more modern theologians like Gerhard Forty, who's passed away, but has written a book, Theology for Proclamation, um, which is very instrumental in my own thinking. Um, this symposium uh, thinks that 40 is just a complete rejection of the law. And I'm like, I feel like Luther already had this conversation. 
So, so the, the the first use of the law, and this is going back, we'll just sort of bring you back up to speed on this. I think we've talked about it. Uh, the first use of the law is for the ordering of society. The second, uh, to, to prepare the way for Christ and to, so that society is not full of, of lawlessness. Um, and, and then the second use of the law, God's law, the Ten Commandments, is is to is to be as a mirror where we we look at ourselves and we we look at our sinfulness and then we're we're on a personal level being broken by the law in preparation for Christ and then the third use of the law is after we're broken by the law and after we're reborn into the Christian life then it's then the the law becomes a, a teacher a guide, uh, a, a guide that, yeah. that, and and one of the one of the ongoing challenges. Luther, if you read actual Luther, he never included the third use of the law. The third use of the law actually came about after um, Luther's death, if I remember. And there, the, he has the, one disputation with Jacob Andreas, who's um, accused of being an antinomian and teaching uh, the gospel as uh, a function of teaching God the wrath of God and the redemption of God. And in that disputation or that debate with Jacob Andreas, Luther references the function of the law uh, to be able to help Christian believers. Uh, right. But mostly, and that is one paragraph in one debate. Uh, and, and yeah, everybody, a lot of people hang their hats on that. Right. So and, otherwise he calls pretty much the political use of the law and the theological use of the law. Right. And, and what happened, I think it's the formula of Concord that they introduced the third use of the law. And and the idea there is again, it's a guide. It's something to help teach us. It's it's uh, it's something to help us in a. And I, you know, I guess I'm I'm sort of with Forday a little bit. I'm, I I believe that uh, so long as we are broken by the law on a daily basis, you don't have to go and you know, and then you revisit your sinfulness every morning or whatever. Then then the the, the gospel will lead you the to gospel, the works of love. Right is the idea. So what's going on in this treatise is between 1517 and 1520, Luther had written on the topic uh, that he thought was most needed by his congregation, and that was comfort from the gospel. Uh, but George Blayton and others are like, but we still need to not just break down into anarchy and let people do whatever they want. So Luther writes this uh, treatise on good works to John, the brother of Frederick the Wise, and, and John is the one who's going to succeed Frederick in 1525, and he dedicates this book to uh, kind of the temporal authorities. That's one of the reasons why it's expanded to John and not just Frederick, because he's kind of giving those who are in charge of good order of the realm the instructions on this is how you are supposed to encourage people in your realm to live. And, and he largely frames the treatise on good works from the political use of the law then, where that first use of the law. Um, and he's saying this is the way that society is best run when we recognize and respect the temporal authorities and we don't yet aim for our achievement in salvation through this keeping of the law. So one of the interesting things that he talks about are the right kind of works and the, the wrong kind of works. And in the right kind of works, well, those, those are the kind of works that are nurturing faith and obeying the Ten Commandments out of faith. And then the wrong kind of works are those kinds of works that draw us away from, from God. And this is where Luther would point out that teaching good works can be destructive to faith. And this is, you're like, what? How can well, well, teaching yeah. good works be destructive to the faith? But he said, if you teach good works in such a way that a person 
will gain confidence that they no longer need Jesus because they have achieved these good works, then your good works have worked to make them further away from Jesus. And we see that all the time. And you know, there, there are plenty of people who do good works in this, in this world who rely on those good works, who, who you know, I, I, I'm, you know, every time I see a, a building with somebody's name on it, I, I think, you know, that's a good work yeah. that, you know, you're, you're, you're glorifying yourself, though. And Great for the horizontal realm. You got recognized and noticed by the people around you, but does it make a lick of a difference between you and God? Right, right. And that's what Luther is concerned about. And so Luther says, whatever is done in faith is pleasing in God's sight, no matter how grand or glorious it may look to the world. Uh, before our beer break, let's take a moment and look at what's going on on the side of Rome, because we've looked at two works by Luther. In June of 1520, what happens? So, uh, Leo, the Pope Leo, releases something called uh, Exerge Domine, which is Arise, O Lord. And this is, this is the first words of this papal bull that comes, and a papal bull is basically a papal proclamation that comes out of, of Rome. That word bulle just comes from the big wax seal that's on it, and that's what the, the bull is called, the wax seal. So the papal bull has the wax seal of the Pope on it. And, and it has this, this great line in it where it talks about this wild boar from the forest and talks about Luther being this wild boar running through the, the church. And, and, you know, you have to give Leo some credit for that. That was, that, that's a very poetic and it's a, it's a fun way <laughs> because Luther, Luther grabbed hold of it. And he thought it was great too. Yeah, and Lucas Cronach, uh, when he painted the altar church piece for the town church in Wittenberg, uh, has a, an image on there of Luther preaching from a pulpit that's pointing at the cross and the crowd is looking at the cross that Luther's looking at. And the decoration of the pulpit in this painting is a bull, a loose wild in boar. A, a wild, I'm sorry, yeah, a wild boar loose in the vineyard. The function of exerge domine is a threat, and the threat is recant Luther, or you will be excommunicated. Right. It's this. It's this. Uh, uh, just the, the the last step. The last step before excommunication, and we have to remember that excommunication. There are plenty of people who are excommunicated today from the Catholic Church because they were divorced or whatever happens. But in those days, excommunication was really something serious where your life was at risk. Someone could essentially, uh, no financial arrangements, no property ownership, and uh, along with the work of the emperor, declared an outlaw and executed. Just like that. Just like that. It was written in June 1520, and it said... From upon receipt of this document, you have 60 days to recant. On December 10th, on December 10th, 1520, 60 days after Luther had received the papal bull, he ceremonially burned the document along with the books of canon law, which included church decrees and other papal bulls. Um, and by burning it, he's essentially declaring that he rejects the ecclesiastical and legal systems that are used to prop up the papal authority over and against the Word of God. Okay, well, time for a beer break. Our beer break today is a beer that is, uh, well, it is a jet black ale. It's by Ore Dock Brewing up in Marquette, Michigan. So, you know, I've been up to Ore Dock Brewing. I, I've, uh, I have friends up there in Marquette. I know a few years ago we went, we went up to all the different breweries, not all of them, but many of them. And I, I'm almost certain we went to Ordock Brewery, um, and it was 
I remember there was one brewery, and I thought it was Ordock, that was not very far from the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then that, that when I read through their their documentation, they talk about how close they are to the to the water, right there by the ore docks. Yeah, located just off of Front Street, the brewery sits where a nearby fire in 1868 had completely devastated the downtown district. The city issued an ordinance stating that all new constructed downtown downtown buildings would no longer be afforded the opportunity to use wood as their primary construction source. And so the historical buildings after 1868 are these wonderful. Uh, brick architectural buildings uh, made from the local sandstone deposits. Yeah, if you get a chance to get up there to Marquette, it's a it's beautiful downtown. Um, it's a, just a great place to visit, and it's really coming back now that the mining is coming back. And so it's it's a. It's and this a brewery, well, how long has it been around? Uh, not that long. They, I think, two thousand thirteen. If I, I yeah, right, right. something like that. So uh, two thousand nine, they made a big road trip. Uh, Andrea and Wes Pernsteiner. Um, out west, 4,000 miles, and, and they traveled a bunch of breweries, and they kind of came home and said, yeah, we can do that. We want to take the atmosphere of those breweries, infuse it with everything they love about Arquette, at Marquette, and they, uh, they found a match of community um, and, and beer and uh, Upper Michigan. So May yeah. of 2012, they opened up. That was 2012, right. What do you think of the beer? I think it's delicious. It is yeah, a great beer. Yours is gone already. It is gone. <laughs> that, that's why I've stumbled on a few words, I guess. But it, what I like about it, it's got a hint of coffee. Um, it's it's full flavored with a very kind of roasty flavor of coffee. Um, subtle carbonation. Um, I think it's a year-round beer. Um, and it's especially good in the cold, though. It, night, it warms up. This is a beer that I think we could have drank a little bit warmer. More, mm-hmm. more the, English, the English style, you know, where... Maybe at forty degrees or something. It's really good, but the, the, as it warms up, it gets you get more of those flavors coming out. Yeah, and it would have you know it's it's still delicious. It's it's incredible as it is. In two thousand thirteen, it won the silver medal at the Beverage Tasting Institute World Beer Championships. Ah, that's what the two thousand thirteen. I knew I read two thousand thirteen. So Ore Dock Brewing Company, Porter, from Marquette, Michigan. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's get back to 1520. So in June 1520, Exerge Domine published, but Luther doesn't stop writing after that. Oh, no. She's got more to say. So on August 18, uh, Luther writes uh, 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 treaties to the, to the Christian nobility. What was the term? It was, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the exact name of it. It was... Uh, it's something he writes to the knights <laughs> yeah. and the Christian nobility. It's episode 16. Um, and why is it significant? Because this is the document where he largely introduces the idea of the priesthood of all believers, that every Christian through their baptism uh, has the opportunity to talk to God. So one of the great things uh, that was introduced by Luther, and I don't think it gets enough airplay even today, 500 years later, is the priesthood of all believers. That was a revolutionary idea in 1520, and it continues, people continue to have trouble with that. 
Um, people want to look at their pastors as having some holy, holier-than-thou yeah. world. Pastor, pray for me. Yeah. Well, well, and well, why, well, why me? <laughs> well, you're the pastor. Well, I will pray for you, but you can pray. Your friends can pray. Everyone can pray. <laughs> you have a secret handshake with God, right? Yeah, then, that's at right. the beginning of your prayers, you have a secret handshake, and then now it all goes in. Yeah. It's, a, it's a special prayer because your pastor said, no, priesthood of all believers... Uh, Nobilizes everybody. You know, the, the, I was just uh, listening. I'm going. I have an audible book of uh, Chad Bird's Upside Down Spirituality. I'm, I'm going through it. And I just went through the, the section on the on exactly this on the priesthood of all believers and the the holiness of of his work when he was a truck driver. Uh, my holiness, the holiness of my work as an engineer. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 there is no difference between the work of a pastor. And, and the holiness of a work of a pastor and the holiness of a work of a truck driver. These are all these are all works and and that that proclaim that are all vocations given by God and blessed by God. Why does Luther write this? Partly to just bring nobility to everybody in what they do in their common life, but also to give everybody the uh, encouragement to speak in favor of reform. That the wall that Rome had built up between spiritual powers and temporal powers had essentially insulated them from any challenge or reform. So Luther talks about the three walls that, uh, that are protecting the church from any sort of study or any sort of, uh, of uh, reform. The church has placed themselves all inside of one silo, and if you're not in our silo, you can't say anything against us. Exactly. So, the, and and the, you know, this attitude that we've got today is is still. You realize how powerful that that the the church's teachings five hundred years ago, yeah. how powerful those teachings are, because we still have this problem today where people don't don't recognize that that the church is. It doesn't have these, it's the people who can reform the church. So the first wall is where the church proclaimed the spiritual power is is more, is greater than the temporal power. When we say the temporal, it's the government power. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the spiritual power, the church's power is greater than the government's power. And so the government has to check everything they do with the church. That's the first wall. And Luther tears that one down. He says... They have affirmed and maintained that the temporal power has no jurisdiction over them, but on the contrary, that the spiritual power is above the temporal. And then he takes some time, and, and if you read through it, it's actually a pretty short little, uh, this, is, this is one of those Luther treaties that's relatively short. So they had the spiritual temporal wall, and Luther knocks that one down and says the temporal uh, authorities of this world have, by their baptism, the ability to speak up. The second one is authority to interpret scripture, and that's another, you know, the, whoever interprets scripture gets to decide what it says, obviously, and so you, you, you usurp. If, if, if only the church gets to interpret scripture, then the church has usurped the, the voice of God. And people will do this today by saying, well, what does the church say about what does the church say about it? And they're looking for some authoritative statement from the church and say, here's the proper proclamation of what this says. Now, and with the church, whenever they're asked that, they need to go back and say, it's not based on my authority, but what the word of God says. This is what the word says. And, and, the, and the church needs to go back to the person who asked that and said, this is, this is based on what 
This is what the word of God says. You read it and you, you need to understand it yourself directly from the word of God. And we should be able to see the same thing. We should be able to see the same thing. The same truth is not my truth because I'm a part of the church. It's my truth because I see it in the scriptures. Right. And the church needs to be able to explain that, uh, and a lot of it comes down to just there's a, the, some very simple rules about understanding scripture, primarily looking at context. Yeah. Make sure you understand what you're reading. Is it poetry? Is it, is it, is it history? What, what are we looking at? And that was kind of the debate over the Bible in the 1970s, is making sure we have common rules when we read the Bible. Right. Not rules of authority like the Pope versus me, but more like historical critical versus historical grammatical. Right. Right. Third wall, the authority of the church to call a council. Uh, they pretend, Luther says, that no one may call a council but the Pope. The conciliary movement uh, that Luther is trying to engage here is this thought that when the church is uh, in conflict, when the church is in dispute or there's not consensus, let's meet all the bishops together. And this had been the practice uh, throughout the history of the early church, starting with the Council of Nicaea in 325, when they had questions about uh, the person of Jesus. Uh, Constantine calls a council, they gather together in Nicaea, and they establish that Jesus Christ is true God of true God. So what the what Luther is saying is that because only the Pope can, during in the 1500s, and I think even today in the Catholic Church, only the Pope can call a council. What that does is it gives the Pope the power to shut down the discussion. It, you know, if the discussion can only be resolved with a council and the Pope doesn't call it, well, then the discussion doesn't go anywhere. And, and so... You know, what Luther is saying, you know, going back to what Evan said about the Council of Nicaea, you know, this is this is the emperor. This wasn't even a, a priest or a pastor or a, a bishop. Constantine called the council because he was exhausted by the disputes that were arising in the church that weren't getting settled. He's like, all right, everybody, let's get in the same room. So Luther's answer to these three walls, it's accomplished by looking at how all Christians in their baptisms have been given the charge to rely on the authority of scripture rather than the institution. So the nobility, the, the, what Luther is basically saying here is that the nobility are not excluded from the affairs of the church. The church can't push them out of the discussion. They have a role here. And in fact, as Christians, they have a, they have a responsibility to seek the, that the proclamation of the gospel and the proper administration of the sacraments is done correctly. And, and so Today, you know, Mike, I think about this in that idea of a democratic society. Who gets to have a voice in what our society should care about and be concerned about and what kind of reform? Now, I'm not talking about Christian reform, just American democratic reform. I think it's, it's completely fair that LeBron James or any athlete can say what they want about society. Absolutely. And you have some report, some... Uh, commentator that says, you know, shut up and just dribble. And that's that's very dismissive. Very dismissive. And it's putting up this wall of essentially saying basically only commentators or people who are the, the political um, intelligentsia elite, elite, elite get to speak up. Right. He might have a bigger microphone than me, but he has the same voice. Right. Right. So. And, and that, that actually that perspective comes out of Luther's ideas on it's a growth of it. But that, that Luther's idea is that everybody has a voice at the table in church uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And so in our democracy and 
1776 wasn't that long after you know the Lutheran the, the Reformation and you know, it had all the things that happened with uh, the Treaty of Westphalia and all that. Those ideas were 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 coming to fruition, and the idea that everybody has a voice in government. Uh, it, you can sort of see where it's all yeah. sort of tied together. I mean, the worst government that it, that happens in America is when the room is closed and the the number of people talking is limited, and they all come with their uh, out of the room with some private idea that we all have to just accept because they're the ones in power. We, right. We want to have a. A spot at the table. Absolutely. We want to be in the room when it happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. A little Hamilton so, reference, by the way. <laughs> All right. October 6th. What happens in October 6th? Uh, the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which is which is one of... Uh, that, that's, that's a great name. The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Um, this is uh, really largely concerned with the sacraments. Uh, the Lord, Basically talking about the Lord's Supper uh, and... and if I remember right, it also does it talk about uh, baptism also? I thought it did. It, it will, but it largely is going to be looking at how the church has been held captive uh, by the whore of Babylon. And, and Luther is referencing, uh, well, it's an interesting reference, because the book of Revelation that is written during a time when uh, John is on the island of Patmos in exile, and he has to write a little bit in code, and he talks about the whore of Babylon that is eventually going to fall, and Christ is going to rule. And in the book of Revelation, the whore of Babylon is Rome, the Roman Empire. Oh, and now okay. in the Babylonian captivity, Luther uses that same metaphor of Babylon for Rome from Revelation. In the his the, treatise, the, the Babylonian captivity, it's now the Vatican, and he's criticizing Rome. Um, and the shackles that Rome puts on the sacrament that prevents the grace and the promises of God that are present in the sacrament from being radically distributed. So we spent a whole episode on the Babylonian captivity of the church. Um, it's actually a pretty, uh, there's a lot there. And so we are just going to touch on it. It's the, episode 18. Episode 18. And, and so the, the big deal here is um, that some of the, one of the big points that's made is Luther argues that the bread and the wine remain true bread and true wine. And at the same time are the true body and true blood of Christ. And this is in contrast to the doctrine of transubstantiation that is present in, in medieval Roman Catholicism that had been a carryover from um, Aristotle. Aristotle had this idea that there's a substance that is the true nature of something, and then there are the accidents, which are just the appearances. Um, the, like if you've got a table, uh, the concept of a table is its substance, but the fact that it's a brown table or a black table or a glass table, those are the accidents. And Luther makes the point uh, that these um, Aristotelian categories just fail to communicate the incredible boldness of God to come in the flesh and dwell among us in this bread and the wine and in the fullness of his body of blood. So in about uh, a thousand, this is, you know, at least my understanding of Catholic history is that um, in about a thousand, AD or maybe 1200 AD, uh, the Catholic Church became very uh, enamored with Aristotelian thought. Yeah, about 1200. St. Thomas Aquinas, that's when, um, it's interesting, that's when Aristotle comes into Europe uh, through... Um, through the Muslims. Through right? the Muslims, yeah. And, and so, so what ends up happening is they're just so excited about this, and then they, they say, hey, 
you know, this is this is truth. Also, all truth comes from God. All truth is is uh, is consistent. There's a consistency to truth. So we have to somehow meld these two truths together into the the, the scriptural truth and and the the this this Aristotelian truth and make them into one. And so we end up with all these crazy ideas like transubstantiation, which is just a lot. They go through the logic well. Yeah, using Aristotelian thought, and they end up with this idea. And Luther just says, "You guys have gone way too far. This is you're 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 way out on a limb. You don't know what exactly is happening. You know, you can't use logic to tell you exactly how God is doing this." So he affirms that uh, the true body and blood of Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and wine, and he also encourages the sacrament uh, to be shared no longer as a sacrifice. Uh, that's made for our sins, but in de- instead distributed as a promise of God's grace that forgives our sins. So uh, the, to finish off, uh, one of the last major things that Luther wrote in 1520 was the freedom of the Christian. And we covered that in episode 19. Great, great one. Uh, this is this is the last famous treaty of that treaties of that, and and in a in a sort of cheeky moment, Luther says that, "Hey, this one's for you, Pope Leo." Now, actually, I've he I've, dedicates it to Pope he, Leo. How I, nice? Oh, yes. Yeah. Actually, I've heard a different perspective on that, where Luther was taking the role of Pope Leo's pastor, and he's actually trying to. It's a final reaching out to to Pope Leo, trying to break through. And recognizing that Leo, this don't forget, Leo Luther continued to think that Leo, and I think even at this point, in many ways, Luther was thinking that Leo was seduced by the people around him. He he had high hopes for Leo when back, especially in 1517, and now that's this is sort of the last last straw, the last reaching out to Leo. Um, so in this in the freedom of the Christian, Luther writes against the tyranny of the Roman Church. Um, and, and when the church, it talks about how the church has become a tyrant, uh, when anybody, anybody wants to, to be free and Christianity is really about freedom. Yeah. So when we're facing the spiritual tyrant of the Pope, or if you individually are just facing the tyranny of your neighbor or anybody else, what is your condition? Are you in bondage to that tyrant? Are you enslaved to whatever that tyrant says about you? Does Whatever the Pope says about you, uh, declare your truth. What is your truth? And he's going to make the point that a tyrant never gets to tell you who you are. Right. Uh, the, that, uh, so the, who gets to tell you who you are, Mike? Christ. Yeah. God, God tells me who I am. And, and it has this great saying in there, uh, a true Christian is, is completely free from all, and a true Christian is a completely a servant of all. So that tyrant may not be able to tell me who I am. Jesus tells me who I am, but I still will make myself a servant right. to whoever is in need. And, and this uh, becomes always a tension for a Christian in a sense of uh, what does protest look like? And Luther will make the point that you are entirely free to protest, but you're also entirely free to serve the people who are in need, no matter what they have done to you. Right, right. So that wraps up the the great writings. Uh, Luther's great writings of 1520 gives a little bit of perspective on on what what was happening in that era, how how Luther got to where he was 
and, and, and what came out of those discussions. So different years will, of the Lutheran Reformation when Luther is alive will be measured by the events and other years are more measured by what is written in those years. So 1517, that year is measured by the event of the nailing of the 95 Theses on the ch- Castle Church doors in Wittenberg. Uh, then you've got uh, 1518 and 19, and there's these debates and there's this movement around Europe as he's trying to influence and change uh, the paradigm of thought. Um, and, and so that's got debates in Heidelberg, the debates in Leipzig, 1520. What's the big, big deal in that? It's the writing. The writings. And, and even 1518, 1519, if you go through those debates, you, you know, Luther's sort of trying to think on his feet on a lot of those debates. It's not like you have these, these kinds of documents. There's not a systematic theology that's ever produced by Luther, but 1520 it gets us cl- close to it. Right. 1520 gets us a huge step forward in the development of Lutheran theology. And, and so now we're going to go into our next episode. We're going to be talking a little bit about 1521. And 1521 is kind of a mixed bag. It's got the event of the Diet of Worms and the translation that takes place. Right. So we're really glad you got to enjoy us in our year of review of 1520. Started with the 14 consolations. Maybe you need some consolation and comfort in the year 2020. Uh, Or maybe you need some boldness against tyrants. And, uh, in 2020. In 2020. Yeah. So you look to what Luther writes about uh, what a tyrant says about you versus uh, what God says about you. It's the freedom of the Christian. The which... freedom of a Christian. And maybe some of it you're just wandering and you're wondering, what should you be doing in 2020? You could look in 1520 uh, on this treatise on good works. There we go. So lots of, lots of great things uh, 500 years ago to help inform our thinking today. I uh, hope you guys have, everybody has a chance to at least look through one of them. And uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>